Well, good morning. We are at 10.30, so I think we will dive in. Better to start on time and end early if it comes to it than to wait too long. Uh, welcome. This is the study of Deuteronomy. This will not, uh, we will not get through the book all in one quarter. This summer, uh, I will be surprised if we make it anywhere into chapter 6. Uh, so uh, Deuteronomy is definitely worth studying. One thing I want to, two things I want to mention right away to begin, though. First is that there are 17, including this one, 17 of these available. These are ESV translations of the Bible, text on one side and a blank page on the other. If you would like one of these, they are $5 a pop, um, and they are available over there on the piano. And if they are out, I have one left with me here. So uh, feel free to help yourself to those. The second thing is last year when I began the summer Sunday school class, I said that we were going to spend two years going through Matthew Barrett's book, uh, Attributes of God, uh, and I have changed courses on that. So two things to say to that. One is forgive me for uh, switching streams when I said I was going to spend two years doing the same thing. The other, though, is that Deuteronomy does a better job of covering the last half of Barrett's book, those attributes, than Barrett himself uh, naturally do, right? So the last half of Barrett's book deals with attributes that are common throughout Deuteronomy. And let's face it, would you rather study the lion in a zoo or in its natural habitat? Uh, This is studying the lion in its natural habitat, uh, going through Deuteronomy. And so I've decided this might work a little bit better anyway. So with that, uh, I will take prayer requests and we will open with prayer. Well, there is nothing wrong with the people of God being content. I will open uh, our prayer time with Psalm 25, verses 1 to 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Father, we look to you as the one who will preserve us until the end, and so we will not be covered with shame. Rather, we will be vindicated and victorious because we are in Christ, who has already proven himself to be the victor over Satan, over sin, and even over death. And so we cast our hope upon him this morning, and we come to the text of Deuteronomy in order that we might better understand and appreciate who this Jesus is, who we worship, and who we follow. We pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning, that you would deepen our understanding, and that you would give us an increased love and devotion for you. Your word can do all of these things for us, and we come here seeking not just the text, but seeking your face through the text. And we pray that you would show yourself to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is not primarily a book about Israel. It is primarily a book about God. Not even Israel's history or Israel's laws, though it has things like that in there. This is a book that first and foremost presents Yahweh, the God of Israel. The book is about God's saving work on behalf of Israel 
And then what he expects from his redeemed people and how they can remain within the covenant and be recipients of future grace now that they have received grace in the past. That is why Daniel Block calls the book of Deuteronomy the gospel according to Moses. And we will see that played out time and time again. So it is uh, news in the sense that it relays to the reader what God has done, and it is good because what the text relays pertains to the reader. It is good for us to hear the news of what God has done. So hopefully this class will be an exercise in Psalm 34, 8, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's what we are after as we study Deuteronomy. This morning, we will aim to make it through chapter 1, verse 5. So if you will turn with me to Deuteronomy 1. This morning, uh, the class is going to be a little bit different than what we will plan for in the future as an introduction Uh, to Deuteronomy, there are some things that are helpful, I think, to get the uh, ground underneath our feet before we go very far in the book. So we are not going to travel a lot of territory this morning. We'll pick up more speed next week. Uh, But the introduction of Deuteronomy comes in the first five verses. So I'll read Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 5, and then we'll come back and spend some time thinking about them. So Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, and we'll stop there for today. So what is Deuteronomy and why should I care? That is the topic for this morning. First, Deuteronomy is the title given to this book. You can see on the board, if you can read that small print, Deuteronomy comes from the Greek deuter namas. Deuter is second, namas is law. That comes from the translation of Deuteronomy 17:18, when Deuteronomy itself prescribes that the up-and-coming king, who Israel is bound to have over them, ought to write another copy of this law. And so, uh, for whatever reason, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text titled the book Deuteronomy. That is a little bit unfortunate and a little bit misleading because Deuteronomy is not exactly a second law. The Hebrew title for every book comes from the first words in the book. So the Hebrew title for Deuteronomy is, These are the words, which is what we find in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of Moses. And so the, uh, the better uh, title for Hebrew, or at least the more insightful 
title for the book of Deuteronomy would be, These Are the Words. And it gives us more insight into what we're dealing with, because we're not exactly dealing with law, and we'll explain that a little bit more. Rather, we are dealing with words of Moses. These are the words of Moses. So then who is Moses? Moses was Israel's pastor of 40 years, and he was God's prophet of 40 years. As prophet, Moses delivers God's words. As a pastor, he delivers those words to a congregation. He delivers them to the people of Israel. And we will see this morning that he does those things well, and that is his main task. In fact, if you jump down to verse 5, Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. I don't know if anyone has a different translation from explain this law. Is that what everyone has, or is there a difference there? Expound. Expound. I think expound is a a great word, um, simply because what a pastor does is to explain, but it is more than to simply explain. It is to expound. It is to give application to. And that is largely what Moses does as we go through the book. And so... When we read Deuteronomy, we have a tendency, I think, to classify this book along with those sections of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers that are kind of drudgery to read. Uh, It feels a little bit like law at times, right? So when you think of Leviticus, you think, oh yeah, here we are. Let's get back to the storyline, right? We're dealing with all of these law codes. Deuteronomy can at times feel that way, but that is to misunderstand two things. First, it's to misunderstand the nature of what we call law books. Leviticus and Numbers and even those portions of Exodus, the last half of Exodus from chapter 20 on, if we were to do the same thing in the Old Testament that some translations do in the New Testament, which is turn the words of Jesus into red print, those books would all be red print. The Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said, and in that, that the Lord said, there's narrative. Those stories, those books are simply dialogues within the story that is going on in the Old Testament. So if we come to Leviticus and we simply think, oh yeah, this is law for Israel, who really cares now that Jesus has come and the sacrificial system is gone? Well, that's casting out what we would call lots of red ink. Um, Let's not do that. Let's understand what that red ink is. And what that red ink is, is the progression of the story. It is God explaining how Israel can remain within God's good graces as they live with him in a covenant relationship. So let's not misunderstand the Old Testament and that all of it on one level is narrative. And then the second thing it does is that in Deuteronomy... Only five times do we receive the Lord's direct speech. If there was red letter in the book of Deuteronomy, it would all be in chapters 31 and 32, and it's only there five times. Five times does the Lord address someone in Deuteronomy. So when the book begins, these are the words that Moses spoke. That is exactly what we're dealing with. Moses spoke these words to Israel. Not primarily God. And what I mean, uh, I don't mean to say that these are not divinely authoritative. They are, and we'll see that in just a little bit. 
But these are the words of Moses who came to explain or to expound or to teach or instruct what it is that the Lord had said. And so Daniel Block does an excellent job of pointing out Moses is much more like a pastor or a commentator on the law that the Lord had already given. Now that might seem to work backwards for us. We might think, okay, I'd rather at least hear the Lord speak than someone say what the Lord had to say about it, right? So it's kind of like when narrative is repeated. You know, is it as easy to read the second time? In Genesis, when uh, the story goes of Abraham sending his servant to go find a wife for Isaac, we get the whole story, and then we get the servant telling the whole story again in the same chapter. It's like, what's with the repetition? Deuteronomy can feel like that. Sometimes it feels like repetition of what we've already had. Do we really want to spend our time in it? But it's not exactly repetition. And neither is the story in Genesis, by the way. The things that are repeated uh, are significant, and the things that are left out are repeated as well. So all that to say then, one of the main themes of Deuteronomy is that it uses, Moses uses, I should say, gospel logic. From chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 29, Moses retells Israel's story from the time they left Mount Sinai until they come to this point on the plains of Moab about 38 years later. And what Moses explains is God's gracious provision and protection for the Israelites, how he not only saved them, primarily out of Egypt, which isn't mentioned much in those chapters, but primarily how God has taken care of them once he saved them from Egypt. And so the first few chapters deal with Israel's history, historical experience in grace. From chapter 4, verse 1 to 40, Moses springboards off that and says, Because God has been so kind and gracious to you in the past, I plead with you, be faithful to the Lord. And he goes through what we would call the application of his first sermon in chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 40. But in Deuteronomy 4, verse 41 to 43, in fact, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there so that you can get a visual of it yourself. In chapter 4, verses 41 to 43, Moses sets aside cities of refuge. He's not speaking. He's actually doing something. And this might seem out of place in the text, and we'll deal with it a little bit more when we get there. But right here, Moses is providing an example not only of the Lord's grace and his concern that his people live, he is also setting an example of what faithfulness to the Lord and righteousness for your neighbor looks like, which are major themes throughout the rest of the book. So before he expounds the law, he gives an example of what the law requires of the people of Israel. So he is eager to set an example, do with his life before he speaks with his words, you might say. In chapter 4, verses 44 to the end of that chapter in verse 49 is the introduction to Moses' main sermon. And his main sermon runs roughly from chapter 5, verse 1, to the end of chapter 26, verse 19. That is a long address. And that is the bulk of Deuteronomy. And what he is doing in the beginning of chapter 5 is he reiterates the Ten Commandments, 
And then he gives the application of those Ten Commandments to every area of Israelite life. He gives example of those things. And so his application is intensely broad. So one thing to remember that as we go through Deuteronomy, one of the things that sets it apart from all the other texts that come before it is that Moses is aiming specifically at the people of Israel to give them pastoral, personal, and a practical explanation of the law that was already given. He tells people what righteousness really looks like when you are living in covenant with God. But looking at that outline, there's one more thing worth worth pointing out, and that is the gospel logic. The indicatives precede the imperatives. Another way to say that is what God has done comes before the way the people are to respond. So the false dichotomy of in the Old Testament you are saved by works, in the New Testament you're not, Moses doesn't go there. Paul's theology and even John's theology and Jesus' theology as well, I might add, are all built largely off Deuteronomy. And one of the things that those theologians pointed out or noticed is that what God does, first Moses presents God's gracious acts, what God has done for his people. Only after that does Moses deal with the way people are to respond to what the Lord has done on their behalf. God's gracious works for Israel come before anything else. The first commandment or the first exhortation that Moses gives to the people of Israel is chapter 4, verse 1. The first commandment he gives them is listen. Moses, as the pastor, is there to expound or explain or teach or instruct. The first thing he expects of his congregation, listen. That's how we grow in grace. Teaching and listening. Teaching and listening. Teaching and listening. Teaching and listening. That's how we grow. Moses' concern is that before he die, Israel understand that. Teaching and listening. Teaching and listening. Salvation is always ordered the same. God's gracious acts come first. Moses had this brought home to him in a powerful way in Exodus 19. If you wish to turn to Exodus 19, Israel has reached Sinai after they have come through the waters of the Red Sea and some wilderness travels. In Exodus 19, they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where we pick it up in Exodus 19, verse 2. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, 
For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Before Moses receives the law, the Lord reminds him, this is what I did for you. This is what I did for this people. Moses gives Deuteronomy after he's meditated on this pattern for 40 years. 40 years he's had in the back of his mind, Exodus 19. This is what the Lord did to the Egyptians. He bore us on eagles' wings, and he brought us to himself. Now, therefore, that's the logic Moses follows as he presents his own sermon to the Israelites. I'll pause for questions or thoughts, reactions to that before we move forward. Yeah. So if you couldn't hear hear Josh, uh, he simply points out that uh, the Lord's nature, uh, is refl- uh, parents are reflective of the Lord's nature, and that uh, long before we're able to take care of ourselves, our parents take care of us. Okay. All right. So Moses gives a sermon to a specific people at a specific time, under specific circumstances. Back to Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. There's the people. Moses gives his words to all Israel. None are excluded. Throughout the book, Moses will sometimes address the people of Israel as a single entity. He says, you, and when he says you, he doesn't say y'all. He says, you, singular, which is encompassing the entire congregation of the people of Israel as if they were one person or one entity. At other times, Moses will treat the nation as a group comprised of individuals and say, y'all, y'all are this way or that way. Moses then makes no distinction between what is true of the group as a unit and what every individual within that group is supposed to think about themselves. So, There's lots of examples. One example is in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, Moses says that the Lord uh, saved all of you. Uh, In fact, maybe we just want to go there because seeing it is is maybe the the best way to do it. And I point it out because English doesn't show the difference between singular you and plural you. Uh, But that's why we have to teach and expound and explain, isn't it? Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 For you, singular, which is treating the whole people as one, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now he begins with plurals. It was not because you all, y'all were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on y'all and chose y'all, for y'all were the fewest of all people. So he, he goes back and forth between singular and plural you, and what I take from that is that what is true of the whole, every individual is supposed to assume is true of them. And that is how faith works. The Lord saved the church, right? Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, so on and so forth. In that, everybody within the church is supposed to believe that the Lord gave himself up for y'all, which comprises the her. That is what Moses does throughout Deuteronomy. The singular and the plural often run together. Additionally, not only does that work as one entity, so there's one unit, but then there's diversity within that unit, but it also works throughout time, which is the rebellion of the wilderness generation is imputed to their children. So that what is true of the generation that preceded them, Moses says is true of that generation. If you want a very simple example of that, we will come to it next week, but I can point it out now. Jump down to verse 9. In verse 6, the Lord will tell Moses, you've stayed at this mountain long enough. Time for you to leave. And in verse 9, Moses says, Then I said to you at that time. Well, that you does not include anyone who was 20 years old or older at the time that they were supposed to leave Sinai. That you was the previous generation, not the generation Moses is speaking to. And so when the text says, Moses spoke to all Israel, that is irrespective of time, irrespective of generation, and irrespective of individual or corporate identity. They are all kind of blended together. We will explain that much more as we go through the text, and I'll explain uh, in future days a little bit more maybe how that works. But I want to point that out because this is one way we can begin to see the way Deuteronomy hits us today. By using the language Moses does between the singular and the plural use, and by not separating this generation from that generation, Moses addresses God's people throughout time who all share the same spiritual heritage. What Moses says in Deuteronomy, we are to take, in some respects, to be true of us. And what Moses commands the people in Deuteronomy, in one way or another, we are supposed to assume somehow applies to us. Sometimes we have to do a little bit more legwork in figuring out exactly how it applies, but all of the principles that are there, and many times the exact commands as they are written there, will apply to us as well. And not only that, because Deuteronomy is an, uh, an explanation of the covenant that God has entered into with his people, Moses reveals the heart of God 
reveals our heart and cuts to our heart at times as well. So Moses speaks to a people. One more thing worth pointing out. There are kind of two introductions. So if you jump down to verse 3, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, or the children of Israel, or the sons of Israel. However, you may want to translate that. So here, Moses is addressing a particular group at a particular time with a particular purpose, but that speech uh, goes throughout time and history and among peoples and applies to them just as well. That is why Paul can say, as he does in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke, so on and so forth. So uh, Paul looks to this and says, this is our text as well. Place. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, which is the eastern side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran, Tophil, Laban, Hazroth, and Dizahab. I'm not going to take the time today to explain that geographically for two reasons. One, I think it's much easier to do when there is a map, and I will provide a map in future days when we deal a little bit more with the geography of what we're dealing with. <clears throat> Excuse me. The second thing is that nobody knows where any of these places are. We know what the wilderness is. We know what the Jordan is. We know what the Arabah is. But all of the places named after that are possibly south of the Dead Sea, but nobody knows where south of the Dead Sea, and nobody knows even for sure that they are all south of the Dead Sea. And so there is a great deal of mystery to that. Uh, so uh, not sure. I, would, I would simply read it this way then for, for our context. The Lord speaks uh, even to all of those places that remain um, inconspicuous maybe, places we wouldn't expect. Uh, but again, a very particular place in particular time. So down in verse Five, we are given another introduction and another place that we know this one. Beyond the Jordan, still the eastern side, in the land of Moab. So there we have uh, a place that was near Moses' death. Mount Nebo is in the plains of Mo- in the region of Moab. That's where Moses climbs to see the land of Canaan before he dies. And he dies up on, on Mount Nebo there. So this is given near Moses' time of death. So let us then move on to the issue of time. Verse 3, In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month. So year one began Exodus, as we've heard. Year 40 is the fortieth year after they left Egypt. They left Mount Sinai in the second year, on the second month, on the 20th day, according to Numbers 10, verse 11. So they wandered in the wilderness after they refused to enter Canaan. They wandered in the wilderness for around 38 years. This takes place after that. They are on the cusp of entering the promised land, and Moses decides to undertake to explain this law. 
Now that 40th year is contrasted with verse 2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, which is another word for Sinai. It's Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. By way of Mount Seir, which is Edom, to Kadesh Barnea. Now Kadesh Barnea, we'll see next week, uh, that's the first place Israel has as its target after they leave Mount Sinai. From Kadesh Barnea, Israel is supposed to wage war against the Canaanites. From Kadesh Barnea, Israel sends spies into Canaan, and they come back with the outrageously large grapes, and they say, that land is so productive, but you should see the people there. We're not going to do that. And then they rebel, and they do not enter the promised land. That's Kadesh Barnea. So Moses is saying this. It should have taken us 11 days to go from Mount Sinai till we were marching into Canaan. It's been 38 years. That's what happens when you don't obey the Lord the first time. That's the context that Moses comes to make his appeal to the people of Israel. You've seen what the Lord has done for you, not only in pulling you out of Egypt, not only entering into covenant with you at Sinai, but in providing for you in your rebelliousness for the last 38 years. Please be faithful with the Lord. And he urges them to do that by explaining and expounding the law. So what Israel could have had in 11 days, it takes her 38 plus years to come to the point of getting. Moses knew the people of Israel well. And so what he speaks, he speaks to a congregation that he knows well. I'm going to stop and pause right there. Any thoughts or questions uh, through all of that? Very well. Well, then we've made it through most of what we've got here. The last thing we will do, I'll, I'll mention uh, verse 4 yet. <clears throat> After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. That is when Moses delivers this. That locates this speech not only close to Moses' own death, which it does, but it also is given after this generation to whom Moses is speaking has also been recipients of the Lord's military prowess. Um, they know what the Lord is able to do in battle. And so uh, Moses, we're not going to spend time going over this because that's what Moses does in chapters 1 to 3, is he'll go over each of these things and we'll get a better handle on them in the future. But Moses is delivering this to the people after they themselves have experienced the goodness of the Lord and his fighting for them already uh, has, has taken place. And so Moses here is, again, just by the introduction, the grace of God is being elevated and uh, therefore is the urge for Israel to live the way they ought to. And again, related to Moses' death, Verse 5, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook 
or began, some of the translations have. This verb could more appropriately, I think, it makes terrible, terrible English, but more appropriately be translated resolved. So if you were to look at the Hebrew text, it would run something like, Moses resolved, he, uh, Moses resolved, he expounded this law. So Moses resolved to do it. Now I would simply ask this question. If you were about to die, what is the very last thing you would want on your lips to be heard? Moses wants the last thing he has on his lips to be recounting God's grace and urging the people he loves to follow what the Lord directs. Uh, He doesn't talk about personal legacy. He doesn't talk about inheritance that he is giving, financial security, we might say. He doesn't talk about funeral preparations. He'll need none. The Lord will take care of it. What he is concerned about is that his people be grounded in God's grace. So Moses is eager to expound this law for Israel. That's the best parting gift he can possibly think to give his people. So he resolved, he had a bent of will, and started down the path of explaining this law. Which leads us to the second thing, to explain the law. Now every time your Bible has the word law, it is translating the word Torah, which is why uh, the last section there under Deuteronomy 5, uh, 1, Moses' explanation of the covenant, which is Torah. I should be cautious to emphasize the covenant is not Torah. Moses' explanation is Torah. Our Bibles translate Torah law every single case in Deuteronomy except one. Flip over with me to Deuteronomy 17, verse 11. The reason I think... Part of the reason, anyway, the English does that is because when the uh, Greek translators translated the Hebrew text, they translated Torah, namas, which is law, right? So, second law. But in Deuteronomy 17.11, even our translations cannot help themselves. According to the instructions that they give you, Which if our translations were consistent, they would say, according to the law that they give you, and according to the decision which which they pronounce to you, you shall do. (coughs) You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. If you give me one moment here. Verse 11, according to the instructions. The reason that's important is because that is exactly... Uh, what the Torah is, instruction. My finger's too fat to get there. So according to this Torah, which they have taught you. So uh, verse 11 actually has two things. According to the instructions that they give you, it's according to the Torah that they teach you. The reason that's important is because Torah is the noun, Torah, of the verb 
translated they give, which is yara. So yara is to teach. Torah is tor is instruction. So they instruct an instruction. If we wanted to translate it the way uh, the Torah is most reflective in English, according to the instructions that they instructed you, is how we would read Deuteronomy 17, verse 11. The instructions that they instructed you. The Torah which they Torahed you. Um, imagine a kid that has a lisp. He, he told you that. right? Um, Torah. Uh, that is what is going on here. When Moses explains this Torah, he is not primarily explaining or giving a law. He is giving an instruction or a teaching. And that is how we are to read it and understand it. Now I draw your attention to that for this reason. When I was a child, my dad gave me a chore. We had pigs, and uh, the pigs required a crushed grain as part of their regular diet. And so my job was to fill the pails that would be used for feeding those pigs. We, my dad would uh, grind the grain in a grinder. He would dump it in a wagon that had a flat bottom. The grain would go in. Dad would toss in half a dozen pails to a dozen pails, and he would say, fill those pails with that grain so that when it's time for me to feed the pigs, I can just pick up the pail, throw it in the grinder. That's one thing you can do to kind of contribute to the farm. That law that my dad gave me, was that a law? Or was that an instruction? And what is the difference? Well, the difference is this. A law says, no, you fill those pails every single day. Seven days a week, you're filling those pails, and that's, that's what you do, lest there be trouble. Instruction is, you make sure that dad has the pails filled that he needs. So if you want to fill twice as many pails on Saturday, so you don't have to go out before church on Sunday morning to fill any, that's fine. In fact... If you want to fill a dozen pails every day, every other day, instead of filling half a dozen every day, that's fine. The law requires a strict adherence to, or you break it. An instruction gives you a direction, a way of life. We might call it an authoritative direction. That's what Moses is giving the people of Israel and what he is explaining. Authoritative direction. Now to tap in with that thought just a little bit to the sermon this morning. Don't touch the table of show. Don't touch the bread that is on the table. No one eats from the show bread. Is that law or is that instruction? Well, in most cases, that is authoritative direction. Don't do it. In the same way, fill the pails is authoritative direction. Does that mean that every single breach of the letter of that is an infraction against God's righteous decree? Not necessarily. So when we come to the text not only of Deuteronomy, but of the Pentateuch, of the whole Torah, of the whole Mosaic writing, which is the first five books, if we understand it as authoritative direction, teaching, instruction, how to live with the Lord. That allows for things like what David did. And 
it also shows a little bit more pointedly how it is applicable for us and why Paul can say, as he does in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is good for teaching and correction and rebuke. So that when he and when John come to Deuteronomy, the theology that they can take from it really works. It really is authoritative. It is authoritative direction. So the way we fulfill that direction might look different because we live in a different time and place. We do not deviate from the heart of what Moses is giving in Deuteronomy and not deviate from the heart of the covenant that the Lord himself gave in Exodus 20 to 23. And so when we see Moses undertook to explain this law, I think it is more helpful to understand that as being authoritative guides or authoritative direction. Uh, And that is what Moses is giving the people. And he does it, as I said before, as Israel's, as his last act of Israel's pastor and God's prophet. As the prophet, he speaks with God's timing, with God's authority, and in perfect continuity with what the Lord had already revealed Back up in verse 3, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, or all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Moses does not do this at his own initiation. He waits for the Lord's time, which is... After, his, after the Lord had delivered them from Egypt, after the Lord had drew them near to himself at Sinai, after the Lord had protected for and provided for them over the last 40 years, and after God gave them a gracious foretaste of the success they will have at taking over the Canaanites in the land of Canaan, because remember, they just defeated Og and uh, Heshbon, Uh, sorry, uh, Og and Sihon. After all of that, Moses, the Lord tells Moses, now I want you to stir their faith even greater. Now that they've had all of these advantages from me, stir them to trusting dependence before they enter the land of Canaan so that they will not only trust me to give them that land, which is the main theme of Joshua, but that they will walk before me the way they are to walk before me which judges is the record of their failure. So Deuteronomy lays the foundation for everything, not only in Joshua and Judges to come, but almost all the other books in the canon reflect back to this book more than any other book. So there is divine authority as God's prophet. Moses reveals God's word, and Moses gives the true interpretation, the true instruction of that word. What Moses says is divinely sanctioned. It is all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So Moses lays the foundation for Israel's theology and way of life. Every prophet after Moses was modeled after Moses, and every prophet who came after Moses was founded upon the theology that Moses gives in Deuteronomy. No other prophet revealed God's will as comprehensively as Moses did. 
And no other prophet received the word of the Lord as personally as Moses did. Numbers 12, verses 6 to 8, is probably the best place to go to understand Moses' preeminence as a prophet. So Moses' own siblings, Aaron and Miriam, primarily Miriam, come and take issue with Moses And this is how the Lord rebukes Moses' siblings. Numbers 12, verses 6 to 8. The Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Think about even the later prophets. Isaiah had visions. Ezekiel had visions. They are explicit about that. They had dreams. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses is central when we come to the Gospels as well. For this reason, no one matched him. When Moses says, there will be a prophet from among your brothers like me. That's what he's pointing to. That intimacy with the Lord. That authority of the Lord. Jesus himself, when he refers to the Old Testament. Luke Luke 24, 44. Jesus gives Moses an incredible amount of credit. And and let's not be mistaken. um, Jesus is more than a prophet like Moses. He is Yahweh incarnate. Um, Red letter, remember. Uh, Red letter words, we could say. But in Luke 24, 44, this is how, how prominent Moses is and how prominent Deuteronomy is in Jesus' own thinking. Luke 24, verse 44, after his resurrection, he says to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When he says the law of Moses, Deuteronomy is perhaps first and foremost in mind, but that as a category of Scripture set alongside Psalms and prophets points in the direction of the first five books of the Bible. That's the law of Moses. And isn't it funny he attributes it to Moses? Moses is the author, yes, But Moses is the one who is divinely inspired to write those things. Moses is the one credited as being the one to teach Israel. When Jesus says the Lazarus died, the rich man died, who are the dead men's brothers who are still alive, who are they supposed to listen to? Jesus says they have Moses. They don't need someone to raise from the dead. They have Moses. Moses spoke to Israel all these words. John 1.17, last place we'll go for the New Testament's thought on Moses today. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth 
came through Christ Jesus. In fact, verse 16 is actually maybe more helpful. I didn't have that one down. For from his fullness, which is the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace, or grace added to grace, or grace in place of grace. The first grace was given through Moses. The second grace was the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. Until Jesus, who embodied grace, there was Moses, who mediated grace. And everything else was built upon that. Moses was the man until Christ appeared on the scene. That's how important Moses was. So I I would present this. If we want to prevent misunderstanding who Jesus is, Deuteronomy is necessary. If we want to pre- if we want to prevent misunderstanding who Jesus is, we must know Deuteronomy. That's what Jesus embodied. Right? Jesus was the embodiment, the one who fulfilled all that the law presented. So there are two questions for the church today. First, do we want to hear from someone like Moses? Do we want to hear from the one who was preeminent in Israel until only Yahweh himself superseded what Moses said? And I I shouldn't even say superseded. That's not even the right word. Um, But um, Moses was irreplaceable. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel until Jesus. Because the intimacy he had with God was unparalleled. If you could speak to someone face-to-face, if you could sit down with someone and learn from them, what is God like? Who better could we sit down and learn from? Now again, we might say, well, I'd rather hear from Jesus than Moses. But again, if you want to hear from Jesus the way Jesus wanted himself to be heard from, we have to go back to Deuteronomy. He can't be heard apart from what comes earlier. So, the second question, and we'll end on this one. According to Paul, but according to more than that, we receive spiritual nourishment from this book. All scripture is profitable for our spiritual life. And so I will end where we began, Psalm 25, verses 1 to 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So there is advantage for those who wait for the Lord, and there is trouble coming for those who forsake the way. Deuteronomy is a book written to provoke and stir, ignite the flame of trust in the Lord. That is what Moses is trying to do for Israel. Trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord. And we benefit as we are drawn into that as well. Because the same logic applies in the old and the new. It is gospel logic. The Lord acts first Good things to wait, good things to come. We have to fight to get those good things, right? We, we live between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. 
There's a fight to be had. We have to be nourished in that path. Israel is, Sihon and uh, Og are defeated. Canaan's not conquered yet. There's good things. We have to trust the Lord in order to get to Canaan and live with the Lord in Canaan. And we too, we have to wait for resurrection, trust the Lord to get us to resurrection, but then we live with the Lord in resurrection. And I can tell you this, what we live on the other side of resurrection will look more like Deuteronomy than what we live now. Deuteronomy sets the example for what we ourselves will embody when we are like Christ, who embodied Deuteronomy himself. So, that's why we should care. Uh, Thoughts or questions over all of that? Yes, so we often think it, in biblical terminology, they would be the same. I think in our minds, we create a difference between them. So I'm just trying to clarify that difference. I think in our minds, the misunderstanding of the word law in Scripture is that it is legislation. Now, sometimes there's a very fine line between what is legislation and what is wise, right? It's always wise to abide by legislation. Legislation um, provides us the pathway of wisdom as well, or should. Um, But there is still a difference between judicial legislation or civil legislation, we might say, and what is wisdom. And what Moses is trying to impart to his people encompasses both of those, but I think in our context is better understood the second way, which is the way of wisdom. So Moses here is, he's telling Israel, this is how you live in our context. So he spoke to the sons of Israel, the children of Israel, he spoke to here, and so it has a legislative element for them, but our legislation is, um, it's not legislated for us quite the same way that it was for them. So there's that. Let me confirm what you're saying because in uh, Deuteronomy 5, 7, that's the first of the commandments, the two commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. When you move forward a chapter to 6, 5, Moses teaches them, you shall love the Lord with all your heart. Well, all your heart, soul, and strength, etc. When we get to Jesus, he repeats 6 5, not 5 7. I mean, I'm just giving you that that, that that fits with what you're saying about the instruction part of it. Yeah, so, or, or we could do the second one, right? Um, don't worship idols. True for us, but we don't make idols. So it's. The, the way it hits us is a little bit different than the way it should hit, hit them. So we, we don't carve our own images and bow down before them quite the same way in our context. So, yeah. Anything else? Okay. Then, God willing, we will see you next week. Thanks for joining.